This is On The Move, a podcast series by the Transport Area of the Florence School of Regulation on the European Green Deal and its implications for the transport sector. I am Teodora Serafimova, and in this series I will be speaking to a number of mobility experts to discuss decarbonization and digitalization among other key issues on the EU transport policy agenda. So today I have the pleasure of speaking to Delphine Gransard, who is a senior researcher at the European Passengers Federation, an international non-profit association representing Europe's major passenger organizations and the interests of travelers at the EU level. Delphine has been working on mobility and public transport related projects for over 10 years, specializing in passenger rights, user behavior, and the needs of specific user groups, such as people with reduced mobility and elderly people. So hi Delphine, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Hello, good afternoon and thank you for the invitation. The provision of cost-reflective price signals is key to driving sustainable behavior by consumers. The internalization of the external cost of transport by means of implementing the long-standing polluter-pace and user-pace principles is indeed a key pillar of the EU strategy to decarbonize transport in line with the European Green Deal objectives. To this end, um, last July, um, the Commission published its Fit for 55 package, which proposes to reform its EU emission trading system, fuel economy standards for cars and vans, and the rules governing energy taxation in the EU, among others. The creation of a separate emission trading system for road transport is also on the table. Now, from a passenger perspective, what is the most desired instrument to curb emissions from road transport in particular? Well, let me start by saying that um, we do support in general these principles of the user pays, the polluter pays, and we need to internalize external costs of transport. Um, so understanding the real costs implies that we should indeed take into account also transport externalities uh, reflecting the impact of all modes, diverse modes on the environment, on congestion, traffic safety, livability, people's overall health, etc. All these things really matter, so it's not just about uh, the direct cost of transport, but also about all these indirect effects. Um, and understanding all this means also that it enables more informed decision-making, both by authorities and also by end-users. It's at the same time also, in our view, an important foundation for having a level playing field between modes, enabling fair competition between modes, and also optimizing, of course, public resources. And so basically, to be fair, the basis of charging should be consistent across modes. And currently, this is clearly not the case. For example, let me start by uh, the air sector because passengers currently pay no taxes on airline fuel and no VAT on airline tickets. Um, so, but this kind of tax exemptions give air travel an additional unfair advantage over other more sustainable transport modes. So yeah, whereas at first sight, you might think, okay, very cheap airline tickets, it's attractive to passengers, but this is not beneficial in the long run to society. 
When we look, for example, then at the railway sector, we have different access fees, so we need to really harmonize them to boost international travel. Uh, and lowering such access charges could boost also more rail services, boost competition on the market, which could lead again to better service and lower prices for customers. Uh, and then coming to the road sector, we have indeed the revised Eurovignette Directive, which also foresees to implement these principles, the user pays, polluter pays for land transport, including now also passenger transport, so not limited uh, to freight. And while, of course, it makes sense to replace time-based charging by distance-based charging, because this would indeed encourage less car travel and better reflect real costs. But in general, we think that taxation and funding um, need to be reviewed in terms of their uh, compatibility, compatibility with Green Deal objectives. And this should go both ways. So we have to make the more, the, the more polluting modes of transport more expensive. But on the other hand, we also need to make the more sustainable modes less expensive and more affordable. For example, in Belgium, we have a system where people, um, as part of their wage package, they get a car. And so in many cases, fuel is also included in the wage package. So if they drive a lot or they drive very little, it doesn't make any difference at all in terms of final cost. So this kind of system is counterproductive, of course, if we want to achieve a more sustainable mobility. So, and on the other hand, we could give subsidies to people who travel by bike or public transport to work. We could lower VAT rates on public transport, just a few examples. So it should really go both ways. And a very important point I want to stress here as well is that in principle, yes, we feel that um, Transport users in general should meet to a certain extent at least the external costs of their journey. But we also need to consider other policy objectives like social inclusion and make sure that this transition to more sustainable mobility is also socially fair and just, as is stated, by the way, in the Commission's Sustainable and Smart Mobility Strategy, we need this transition to sustainability, but also making sure that no one is left behind. Because it's really important to realize that transport is a big expenditure in households in Europe. It's the second largest expense. Uh, only housing comes before. So this is really a, a big burden. And in many cases, people with a lower income also live in areas that are less accessible, that are outside the really the core city, that are maybe in more rural areas, less public transport and so on. So they are often in a situation of forced car ownership. And then if you heighten the price of car use, then you really punish these people, whereas they might not have any alternatives. So this is really important um, to consider these needs of these groups and, and, and think of solutions uh, on how to avoid that they are hit hardest by these measures. And so in general, another important point I want to stress is that pricing, of course, it's an incentive to push, uh, to nudge people towards uh, certain transport modes, but it is only one part uh, of the deal. So people who can afford it, uh, if nothing else changes and there are no available, affordable, attractive alternatives, they will just keep on driving. So 
we need to, to see, okay, if the prices go up, will this really have our intended results? What impact will it have on people's behavior? And we will probably see in many cases there are no real, really good alternatives. And that is the main barrier, preventing a shift towards more sustainable mobility, because many people would like to change their behavior, but they just can't, or it's really near to impossible. Um, so we really need to also invest in the public transport system, the transport system as a whole, also walking and cycling infrastructure and so on, interchanging, uh, interchanges between modes and so on. So involving end users also in the development of services uh, to make sure that their needs are met. And so to summarize these needs, passengers want a transport system that is, of course, affordable, which refers to pricing, but also it needs to be reliable, uh, connected, uh, have sufficient capacity uh, to allow to go comfortably from point A to B, also at the times that people wish to travel and so on. So all these things also um, are very important. So we need a more holistic view. We need to integrate the whole system in terms of infrastructure, but also information, integrated timetables, integrated information and ticketing, passenger protection and pricing indeed. But if the offer ultimately is good, then the demand will follow. We see this in cities where there's really a good extensive public transport network, then it's used. We also see it in long distance travel. If we have a good uh, high speed rail connection, we see that the, the demand for aviation goes down. Um, so this is really a core point improve the offer and demand will follow and pricing incentives are just one part of the overall package. And by the way, also urban planning and urban design need to be retaught because we are really so focused the last decades on uh, car use. Our cities are not, yeah, we should make, make walking and cycling more attractive, create more space for them less space for private cars, just make it more pleasant to use other modes. Uh, and of course, the urban planning and in, in, in a more general sense as well, because if you have low density development, it also encourages or necessitates sometimes car use. And it becomes very difficult to organize public transport in a cost efficient and attractive way. So all these things um, are needed. Uh, to encourage a modal shift towards more sustainable transport modes. Ultimately, then we will have uh, less road transport and more public transport and active mobility. Thank you, Delphine, for this very comprehensive answer with some very concrete examples that uh, you've referred to. And as you clearly stated, it's beyond uh, pricing incentives. It's, it's uh, also about providing the necessary alternatives. It's about uh, providing information. And so um, my next question actually uh, will touch upon this. So besides the need for economic uh, incentives, transport users also need to be provided with reliable, timely and trustworthy information, as you've already um, hinted at, in order to enable them to, to make an informed choice regarding their travel options. So what is the sort of information that passengers should be provided with to induce them to opt for these journeys with lower environmental footprints? And what is the best way to facilitate the provision of such information to passengers while avoiding greenwashing? Well, first of all, indeed, 
to be able to make an informed choice, passengers need a neutral, comprehensive, reliable overview, ideally, of all the available multimodal travel options that they could choose. If they are not aware of these options, they will not choose them. So um, such information needs to be reliable, correct, up to date, of course, and also real time, because if something goes wrong, there's a need to adapt to the new situation. And then what's also important in terms of making an informed choice, in our opinion, is the ranking of results. Because in our view, um, what is currently mandated for air travel in the CRS code of conduct is a principle of having a neutral display. And because the ranking is really having a big impact on consumer choice, we feel that these principles of having fair competition, neutral display, uh, which indeed enables the informed choice, um, is really preferable to yeah, just having a random overview and those uh, being most appearing on top of the list. Um, so ranking what criteria, what information should be um, added to the overview. Well, of course, there's travel time, there's travel price um, as a minimum. But indeed, we think it would be a really good idea to also take, take into account environmental impact and sustainability and that people would be given the chance to say, okay, this is an important thing for me. I want to rank results based on this uh, variable. Uh, because we have a growing environmental awareness among people and uh, we also have uh, the strong uh, urgency, the urgent need to really do something about it. Um, so this really, uh, there's really a strong case for more information on environmental impact. Um, but again, yeah, such information should be transparent, reliable and comparable. Otherwise, we risk greenwashing and we also risk that uh, passengers feel they cannot really trust the information that they are given. So there are some barriers here to, to be overcome. First of all, we need really EU-wide reliable standards for measuring this impact. Also, um, across modes, not focusing on one mode, but enabling the comparison between the impact of different modes. And in the future, also including non-CO2 impact, because right now we are focusing a lot on this aspect, but of course, environmental impact is broader than this. And if once we have such standards, it's also important that they are applied across platforms, across operators, so indeed that we can compare results. And um, finally, it's really complicated to, co to calculate overall environmental impact, but for passengers, uh, it should be really uh, presented in, a, in an easy, accessible way. For example, a label or an icon, most sustainable choice, that could be also a good idea. Besides decarbonization, the protection of passengers and their rights is another core policy objective of the EU most recently reaffirmed in the Sustainable and Smart Mobility Strategy. The mass cancellations uh, that we've seen during the COVID-19 pandemic have shown the importance of EU-wide rules and their uniform implementation and enforcement, while at the same time highlighting the value of flexibility in the current realities. The Commission is set to propose regulatory measures to enable innovative and flexible tickets that combine various transport modes and give passengers true options for door-to-door -door travel. In your view, what are some of the main hurdles in the way to establishing a common multimodal framework for ticketing and passenger rights? 
well, indeed, today planning, booking, executing a multimodal trip is really complicated. It takes a lot of effort and you risk being stranded somewhere without assistance because you have no rights. Um, so integrated information and ticketing is really a key enabler for more sustainable multimodal mobility. Um, but there are some hurdles to overcome indeed. So in our view, I will just briefly mention the main ones. Well, first of all, we need, of course, open standards and interoperability. This enables roaming, scalability, economies of scale. But this is only the technical aspects. I think uh, a bigger hurdle is the willingness to share data because not all operators are so keen on uh, doing that because they prefer to retain their direct contact with customers. And data ownership is still uh, seen somehow as a competitive advantage. So really, um, there are a lot of EU initiatives on this right now. So I think it's a good thing to address this, um, this barrier. And then related to this, we have also the questions on governance and ownership of data. Um, both for the users, so what is being done with their data if they share it with a distributor, with a provider. Uh, we need GDPR compliant uh, treatment of data, of course, privacy and so on. And data sharing should not be a one-way street because authorities and operators also need, for example, data from the distributors, not only the other way around, because they need input on how to plan for their investments, on, on how to plan transport schedules and so on. Um, and then I think another um, barrier is business modeling, financial viability, because if you add an intermediary to the ecosystem, then of course they also want to earn a living, but we need to strike a balance between the interests of all the parties involved. We have the operators who still want, of course, their income from the passengers. Then we have the intermediaries who want their share, but ultimately for end users, the end price should remain affordable, obviously. And then another barrier, and this is on the second part of your questions, dealing with passenger protection, because currently we have EU-level passenger rights, but they are quite limited. They apply to long-distance trips. They are mode-specific, and so multimodal trips are not covered, and also local and urban transport is not covered. So. When you do a multimodal trip, unless there's a single contract, a true ticket, then there's a risk of being stranded. There's no guaranteed arrival at the final destination. And if you need to buy a new ticket, of course, this can come at an additional cost. So this is really important to move from co-modal to intermodal true ticketing to better protect passengers who travel in a multimodal way. Uh, so we have the revised rail passenger rights regulation going a bit uh, into that direction and encouraging railway companies to offer true tickets. But this is just the beginning. We should really uh, think about a more comprehensive framework to, to tackle this problem. And looking a little bit further into the effects of the pandemic in the urban mobility domain, COVID-19 has, among other things, also triggered a re-evaluation of space regulations, as you already um, brought up in your um, earlier answers, uh, with many cities enhancing space allocation to cycling as a greener and more individual way of traveling or taking measures to discourage private car ownership. And when talking about the shift from ownership to usership, the topic of mobility as a service, or mass in short, obviously comes to mind. 
and uh, this integration of different transport uh, services into a single mobility offer in which public transport is at the core has been advocated as a means to change customer behavior towards more sustainable options. So how can mass benefit passengers uh, if you were to, to reach out to the broader audience that this podcast also aims to reach out to? How would you put this uh, for them and how do you see COVID affecting its future development? Uh, do you think we'll be seeing more or less of it in future? Existing habits um, are important to influence any type of behavior, also travel behavior. So it's difficult to change travel behavior if you're a car user. It's difficult to convince uh, someone to, to change uh, their habits. So basically, the mass user needs to be better off compared to taking the private car. And in theory, it's possible because mass has a potential to offer a flexible system adapted to someone's needs and preferences that is convenient, easy to use, and affordable. This is a theory, and that sounds great. But of course, um, some conditions need to be met. First of all, what is the extent of application? Because if it's limited to city, for example, but you are uh, moving beyond, then yeah, it doesn't help you much. And then there's also trustworthiness and reliability about the information provided and also the transport service provided, the transport services that are included in this in the offer. Do you trust it? Is it reliable? And so on. Then there's the attractive pricing. We mentioned it already. You know, you have the, the intermediaries who want their share. So, but ultimately it would make sense to have a package that is cheaper and not more expensive than the sum of uh, its elements. Uh, we have protection in case something goes wrong. Again, we already spoke about it. We have also privacy and data security concerns, possibly because it's a personalized offer, but still users need to be able to remain in control of their own data. Um, so these are some, some elements to take into account. Also, we need to be aware of some risks related to mass that are not always uh, considered or that are not always beneficial. Uh, and one of these risks is that um, commercial models might push the use of more profitable modes like Uber or electric scooters or things like that. And perhaps this will not come at the expense of private car use, but of public transport and walking and cycling. So this is something we shouldn't avoid. Another thing is that um, it might target uh, mostly wealthy, tech-savvy city residents, whereas also other people, vulnerable groups, people living in de less densely populated areas, they actually would also really benefit from a solution like this, but they are not targeted. Um, so again, something to avoid, something to consider. And of course, mass alone cannot solve everything. It's based on what is available in terms of infrastructure and transport services. We also have the cost of each service. We talked about internalization of external costs. So really, there are a lot of factors to take into account. But 
yes, it has potential, but we should also be aware of the risks. Um, and regarding the impact of COVID-19, well, of course, especially in the beginning, at the onset of the pandemic, there was a huge impact on transport demand, a uh, lot less demand. Uh, we all know we started working from home, doing shopping online, meeting online, etc. Uh, and there was also an impact on modal choice. Uh, partly positive because we started walking and cycling more. But on the other hand, we also started using public transport and shared mobility also less. So this is really a risk that, yeah, um, we see that of, of course now the levels of public transport use are rising again, but still not to the levels before, whereas car use has really recovered. So some people may still keep seeing the private car as a preferred option because of personal safety considerations. It's like a private cocoon. Um, so, and, and when we will see um, autonomous vehicles coming to the market, this will become maybe even um, more of a risk because yeah, then you can just do whatever you want inside your autonomous vehicle. You can work, you can uh, talk, you can read whatever, um, what you can now do on public transport. Um, so these are things to take into account and also um, if we want to rise to this challenge, because of course it is not something we would like to see that people continue to choose private transport uh, over public transport. Uh, so public transport needs to adapt, um, for example, adapt, uh, adapt the, the commuter subscriptions uh, because yeah, people don't go to work anymore all day, every day. So flexible tariffs would be a good idea. Also, people expect uh, more clean interiors. They expect also perhaps some more personal space. Um, so this kind of thing, uh, flexibility is key. I mean, really listen to users again, um, because needs also vary according to culture, to country and so on. But yeah, still um, it's, it's, it's key that the operators really listen to the users and adapt. Um, to changing expectations and changing mobility behavior. Thanks a lot for uh, this very insightful uh, reflections, uh, Delphine. We've already touched upon a number of very interesting and diverse topics today, but knowing that you're active across all the different transport modes, I'd like to also take the opportunity to talk about aviation in this final question. Now, airlines have been a prime beneficiary of state aid and government bailouts since the start of the pandemic, even if this state aid has not been evenly distributed. At the same time, aviation carries a particular responsibility when it comes to tackling the transport sector's uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And uh, at the same time, the competitive landscape in which aviation stakeholders operate today has dramatically changed since the start of the pandemic. Now, what are your views regarding the current commission guidelines for state aid in the aviation sector? Are they fit for purpose, uh, taking all of this into account? And should the guiding what should be the guiding principles and criteria behind the allocation of state aid in the, in the aviation sector going forward? Well, of course, yeah, following the COVID-19 crisis or during the COVID-19 crisis, because it's still ongoing, many transport companies, but especially airlines, have received a lot of state aid. And of course, it was uh, necessary and needed um, to survive. But 
at the same time, as for any kind of state aid, it should always be justified and we need to take care that it doesn't uh, endanger competition. And for us, this means competition between operators, firstly, but also between modes. Uh, and also at the same time, we need to think about the long-term perspective and also assess decisions that we make today against the pillars of sustainability, the three of them, not only the economic ones, but also the social and the environmental one. So, well, regarding stated to airlines uh, specifically, there are two main principles that we feel um, that should guide uh, state aid support. And basically, state aid should only be used, in our opinion, to support air services needed to ensure connectivity. And that they, and that cannot be be covered by another more environmentally friendly mode of transport, um, yeah, specifically high speed rail. So we have connectivity and we have market efficiency, basically. Uh, and in addition, it should also come with social obligations towards not only staff but also passengers. So well. Let me explain a little bit what I mean. So related to connectivity, well, of course, we have been invited to rethink essential travel in COVID times. We had a reduced network. Um, we had also reduced demand, reduced number of routes. Um, and in some cases, especially for islands and remote regions, connections have been uh, going uh, for social needs. And in such cases, there's of course a role for public service obligations because there are perceived social needs and authorities, it's up to them to have a cost benefit analysis of these needs and decide which services are needed to serve services of general uh, interest uh, of general, yeah, that's whether there is a general connectivity need. But on the other hand, of course, if the state aid is used to, for example, open up new routes. I mean, yeah, of course we have freedom to travel, but I mean, on the other hand, we have Green Deal objectives. We don't want to return to an unbridled growth of air traffic with no limitations, encouraging travel for the sake of it. Um, again, I'm speaking about the state data. Of course, if you have commercial services, that's a different story. But the state aid really should focus on uh, the services that are needed to ensure this connectivity and not um, on expanding uh, business beyond that. This is an important point. And then um, approval of state aid for EPF, it should also be conditional on compliance with European law. And this includes passenger rights because during the crisis, passenger rights were not respected. There were a lot of cancellations, but yeah, passengers are in principle entitled to cash reimbursement, but instead vouchers were pushed onto them. Uh, and these vouchers were not even insolvency protected. So this is really not um, acceptable. And then airlines could use state aid to reimburse passengers, but in, uh, in no real specific case, as far as we know, this has been done. So, well, this could be improved in the future. And then a final remark on competition, because we already have a trend towards consolidation in the aviation market. So we risk to um, that this trend will be strengthened due to COVID. 
also because of large differences in state aid support to airlines, uh, especially the legacy airlines. Um, so in our view, it's important that to consider how state aid can distort competition between airlines firstly because some airlines have received state aid some a lot some less and some nothing at all and the situation and the amounts are very different per member state um, and then on the other hand also considering other transport modes because as we mentioned before Actually, we want a shift towards more sustainable transport modes. So if we invest really a lot in aviation, then there's nothing left or less left to invest in sustainable, more sustainable mobility modes. So this is also something to consider. So in our view, stated, yes, because it was an extraordinary situation, but it should be available on a non-discriminatory basis to both big and small carriers, existing ones, but also new ones, also regional ones, and also taking into account a more multimodal perspective. Thanks a lot, Delphine, for taking the time to share your views from the passenger standpoint. It's a standpoint that I think each one of us will identify with. I've really enjoyed our conversation today. I've also learned a lot and I'm looking forward to the next opportunity of exchanging with you. Thank you. Thank you so much.